Uh, Scott Petty will be speaking to us uh, from God's Word. Uh, we'll also be sharing together in the Lord's Supper as well as taking time to pray. Uh, and as we sh share together in the Lord's Supper, for those of you who are, who are at home, make sure you've got some bread and a little cup to join us as we uh, join in that celebration. Uh, right now, we're going to say together what it is that we believe about God, His greatness and His love in the Lord Jesus, using some words from the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1. Please join me as we say this together. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. We're going to hear some video news uh, about things going on at St Matthew's, which you'll see on the screen. Well, hey there, and welcome to St Matthew's today. It's great to have you at church with us as we close in on the halfway point of the year. Now, if you're new with us today or you'd just like to get in touch, then can I encourage you to find one of these little cards in the seat in front of you and scan that. It'll take you to our online connection card where you can ask questions, share prayer points, or just say, hey, we'd love to hear from you. But for now, here's a little about what's coming up in the next little while at St. Matt's. This Friday night, Dave and the music team are back with the prayer and praise night. We're getting together in the auditorium in the Darley Smith building for a night of praise, worship and fellowship. Now, throughout the night, we'll be celebrating that the joy of the Lord is our strength and everyone is invited. We've even made sure that it's not on a school night, so it'd be a great thing to come along to as a family if you've got high schoolers at home. Now, as the financial year wraps up, this is your last chance to give to our Foundation Winter Appeal. The St. Matthews Foundation supports our soup kitchen ministry, community chaplaincy at the Northern Beaches Hospital and scripture teachers in our local high schools. And today, I'd love to let you know a bit more about scripture. Now, Anchor RE, formerly the McKellar Area Scripture Board, has been sending scripture teachers into local high schools for 40 years now. All up, 11 churches contribute to this ministry, with St. Matt's being the largest donor. At Bally and McKellar, Kieran and Susie teach over 25 lessons a week which is a massive amount of time to share the biblical worldview with a massive amount of students. Now there's an opt-in rate of over 90% at both schools. That translates to over 1,800 students hearing about Jesus each week, most of whom won't have the regular opportunity outside of SRE. We also have Ben Adamo who is volunteering to teach classes at Manly Selective and our terrific team of volunteers who teach scripture at Manly Village Public School. The Foundation supports Kieran and Susie in their employment and helps to provide resources for all our scripture classes. It's certainly a great thing to donate to. 
Now, if you want your tax-deductible giving to count for this year, it needs to be in the church account by the end of the month. So that really leaves either today or tomorrow as your last chance to make it happen. So can I encourage you to make that a priority? You can find all the details about how to do that or about how to get in touch and what's happening at our church on our website. service that we're calling Gospel Joy. Uh, next Sunday what we'll be doing is we'll be taking time to reflect on what we've heard from God's Word in the Book of Romans over this last term. And uh, one expression of that reflection will be in our singing of hymns and also the choir performing a number of items for us. Another is that towards the end of the service there'll be a chance for you uh, to share something uh, if, you're, if you'd like to do it, about the way in which God has been speaking to you as we've been listening to the Book of Romans. So there'll be a time just for a short word of testimony from a, a number of you who'd like to do that during the service next week. Right now we're going to sing together. I'll ask our musicians to come forward and lead us in uh, singing our next hymn, which will also be our offertory.
from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 23. And it doesn't say here which page that's on. 1131. Thank you. Romans 6, verses 1 to 23. That's the whole chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that through, though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap from that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Thanks be to God. You guys hear me? Yeah. There we go. In Romans chapter 6, that would be a great help. In fact, I would say today it would be impossible to follow along without Romans 6 open in front of you. So give that a crack. And as you're doing that, I, I must, uh, I'm legally, legally obliged to let you know that uh, we're seeking an amendment to um, Manly Corso <coughs> property and mortgage ordinance. It's about financing the building that we finished last year and the amendment lets us continue repaying things as we have been already into the future. Uh, so listen, if you want to see that, um, there's a copy of the amendment down at the back where Deb is. Uh, just avoid the stampede. You know. <laughs> Let's pray and we'll get to work. Eh? Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness to us and making us, in speaking to us and then coming among us and help us to give our attention to you and your words that we might live for you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, uh, there are some offers that just seem too good to be true, right? Um, they used to be on TV, didn't they, where for today only you'd get some amazing gadget at half price with a free set of steak knives thrown in. Now, I need that picture up there. It's a visual gadget. There it is. Beautiful. Um, these days, if I'm ever looking for an offer that seems too good to be true, I can find them in my junk mail filter which screens out spam mail from genuine useful email. So I've been receiving offers to make millions on cryptocurrency. What could possibly go wrong with that? Offers about weight loss from natural keto supplements. And I could burn fat fast in time for summer, as in the American summer, without diet or exercise. It sounds interesting. Um, I receive offers to make my hair grow miraculously, offers to make my lawn grow miraculously, offers to make my bank account grow miraculously, none of which, which require work or much work. Amazing results just by clicking here. Now most of us look at these offers and think, if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. But from 1 January to 1 May this year, Australians lost over $200 million to scams. So someone is buying and somebody is losing big time. Now at the centre of the Christian life there is an offer that looks too good to be true, isn't there? Because we say that our sins and shortcomings can be wiped clean, at least in terms of the penalty they attract before God, and we are additionally treated by God as if we were not only innocent without crime, but as perfect and positive as Jesus was in his earthly life. I mean that sounds too good to be true. And just to give it a little bit of nuance, the New Testament tells us that when God gave the Old Testament law to Moses, it started to record our wrongdoings or charge them to our account. To the point where we saw last week in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul said these words, The law was brought in so that the trespass of sins might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So sin increases now that it's recorded on our transcript, it's charged to our account. But for Christians, where sin increased, the forgiving grace of God in Jesus increased all the more to cover that sin. You think, well, that really does sound like an offer too good to be true. And in Romans chapter 6, which you've all got open in front of you now, 
The Apostle Paul anticipates these sort of objections, especially from among the Jewish converts in the Roman church. And you can see two of those objections or questions very clearly in verse 1 and verse 15. So let's read them together. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Or down in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Two questions that structure the whole chapter. Two answers from the Apostle Paul that provide us with powerful motivation to resist and to rebel against sin and temptation in this new life that we have in Christ. First, we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Second, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. So that's, that's where we're headed today. Now, this is our final week in our, our Roman series this term. And so far, the Apostle Paul has described beautifully and brilliantly how we ungainly, sinful human beings, nevertheless declared righteous by God. We're, we're treated as if we were as pure and positive as Jesus was in his earthly life. Though, of course, we are anything but. Should we trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? The Apostle has shown us that the people of God have always been declared right with and acceptable to God on the basis of belief, faith, and trust, all the way back to Abraham. He's traced our fallen and sinful humanity even further back to Adam, but he has rejoiced in the salvation and relationship with God we now enjoy in Christ Jesus. The eternal penalty of our sin has been dealt with decisively. But why should we resist its ongoing presence in our lives? That's what we're talking about today. And so firstly then, we are dead to sin, but alive to God. And that's really the point the Apostle makes in verses 1 to 14. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Now, <laughs> that sounds like it needs some explanation, doesn't it? So let's see how it works in verses 1 and 2. And you want to read this in your own Bibles there. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the Apostle Paul is anticipating a logical objection amongst his readership. Shall we go on sinning that grace might increase? Uh, the logic is this. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Let's get it going. And Paul's response is not, oh, I can see your point there. He's like, no, by no means. No way, champion, for you have died to sin right alongside Jesus. And in verses 3 to 5, he says we've been baptised into Jesus' death, which sounds like a very confusing thing to say. But this is what he means. When you become a Christian, you typically get baptised, and that normally involves being immersed, dunked into water. Whether or not that has happened precisely for you, symbolically in baptism, when you first trust in Jesus, you join Jesus in his death. Okay, Your death in baptism looks like a drowning his looks like a crucifixion, but you both die. Or as verse 5 says, we have been united with him in his death. When I was younger, I had a friend who had a terrible breakup with a girlfriend. And then she quickly started seeing another chap. And then she quickly got engaged. And he quickly got very sad. And he was the hopeless sort of romantic kind of guy who would probably turn up at her wedding just to feel even worse. So I turned up to his house before the wedding, like on the day, with a pair of police handcuffs in my bag, like the real thing. And I figured that if he insisted on going to the wedding, I would handcuff him to me 
and we would be going nowhere. We would be united to each other, going and not going to the same places together. Now, by the time I arrived at his house, it, <laughs> it turned out that he'd got off to play golf with some other friends. <laughs> He's really good mates, you know. <laughs> but through our baptism, really our trusting in Jesus, we are united, handcuffed with him, joined to him in his death. Where he goes, we go, even into death. But hello, you're saying, I'm still alive. How can I possibly have joined Jesus in his death? What part of me died exactly? Well, verse 6 puts it like this. Let's read. Our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What died when we were figuratively handcuffed, joined to Jesus in his death? It was the old self. That man or woman who was formerly committed to a life in ignorance or indifference or outright rebellion against God, whether we were polite or hostile, that former self died. And only because that old self, the person we used to be, died when we first believed, can we be free to get on with the job of living for God and say no to the power of sin. And maybe it will help to explain what dying to sin is not. Dying to sin does not mean I no longer want to sin. I may do, and it, it, and it may well be quite intense. It doesn't mean I no longer ought to sin, though that's clearly true. It doesn't mean I'm no longer guilty of sin, though that's true as well, for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin means I am no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. It means I now have the ability to resist and rebel against it in a way I formerly didn't. I no longer have to obey it. There is a new sheriff in town who is ruling my heart. I died to sin when my old self died. And uh, one of the upshots of being united or handcuffed with Jesus in his death is that we're figuratively also handcuffed to him in his resurrection to new life, which we see in a few places. You see it there in verses 4 and 5, so let's read that together. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8 puts it in a very similar way. If we died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. That old man, that old woman, the one who was committed to sin, politely, impolitely, whatever it is, has died. But if you trust in Christ, you've been raised to new spiritual life just as he has. So when you ask the question, why shouldn't I sin? It does seem logical, right? The more I sin, the more grace there is. But the real answer is, my old self has died. It's been crucified, it's gone, and I am now alive with Christ. That former man who couldn't say no to sin is in the tomb. And he's a new man alive to God. That former woman who, who couldn't help but obey her sinful instincts is dead. And she is a new woman, now alive to God. What I was once is in the grave. It's at the bottom of the ocean. 
and now I'm alive to God. Why would I carry on as though that old mate is still around? If I died to sin, how can I live in it any longer? In fact, why would I even ask that question in verse 1? I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. In the second half of the chapter, the Apostle Paul imagines another objection, uh, another question, and this is really a question that he might anticipate from Jewish converts to Christianity. Have a look at verse 15, let's read that together. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? You see, in verse 14, the Apostle insists a Christian person is not under the Old Testament law, even if they have a Jewish background. The Christian is ruled by a new regime, lives in a new era of grace, in which the unmerited kindness of God doesn't hold our sins against us. But does that mean we have no obligation to live a holy and obedient life? Or to ask the question the other way around, how does grace motivate us to live a godly life? If we're not under law but under grace, how does grace move us towards obedience to Jesus? You see the question? It's a good question. And the Apostle's answer is that Christians aren't slaves to sin, but are slaves of righteousness. In fact, servants might even be a better term because he has in mind kind of a household servant rather than a modern-day sex slave or, or someone working in a sweatshop making T-shirts for Westerners. We're not slaves to sin we're servants of righteousness. We don't obey sin, we obey God. Well, let's read from verse 16. Don't you know, he says, and he's talking to us, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're the slave of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. <laughs> wow. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul says something rather remarkable about slaves and masters. He says, you can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you can't be neither. And you can't be both. Let me say it again. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you can't be neither and you can't be both. We are controlled by the one to which we've offered ourselves, whether we're religious or not. Now, I realise if uh, you're not a Christian here today or at home, uh, that might sound utterly preposterous. I really hope it doesn't sound self-righteous because one thing we Christians are acutely aware of is that we're no better than anyone else and I'm certainly not a better person than you. I'm quite sure I'm worse. In fact, Christians are told that before we trusted in Christ, we were slaves to sin. And when a person trusts in Christ, they're set free from sin, but it doesn't mean they're a loose caboose, right? a free agent that belongs to no man, in the words of verse 16, having been freed from our slavery to sin, Christians are now slaves to obedience. Or in verse 18, slaves to righteousness. Ultimately, verse 22, slaves to God. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. You are either a slave to sin 
And sin is what you obey, whether you do that politely or impolitely. I hope I can say that respectfully and humbly. Or you're a servant of God and you obey him. Not because you're good, but because he's good. You cannot be neither and you cannot be both. I worked for Woolworths in Gordon for a grand total of four ships in 1994. I was um, a night packer, not a checkout chick. My standard shift was from 2am to 5am. <laughs> that was awful. I remember the music that came over the speakers was awful. It was the same chirpy eight songs on repeat all throughout the wee hours of the morning. I told my supervisor that I couldn't work the Friday night shifts because I helped out with youth group. He told me that if I wanted to be a packer, then Woolworths had to be my number one priority. I had to arrange my priorities, I had to offer my service, I had to really give my highest allegiance to Woolies. And I looked at this fellow who was nice enough, my supervisor, but skinny, pasty, chain-smoking chap that I don't think had seen sunlight for about three years. I mean, he looked like a very unhealthy vampire. <laughs> And I thought, it's not really working for you, Skipper. So that's a no from me. Being a servant at Woolies Gordon through the night was, was not service that led to life. Now, if you trace through the passage from verse 17, there is a wonderful unfolding description of being a slave or a servant to God. It firstly involves a changed heart. It involves a new allegiance. It involves obedience and new behaviours. It leads to holiness and living. And ultimately, it leads to eternal life. So much better than Woolies. <clears throat> and it all comes from God. Slavery to sin begins at birth. Thanks so much, Adam, as we saw last week. But slavery to God begins at new birth when we first believe, when our old self, old mate, dies, when God's grace enables us to embrace the gospel in our heart of hearts, and then which changes our motives and our behaviours, resulting in a total change of life which prevails into eternity. Thanks be to God. And so, Christian, ask yourself that question again. Why would I try to live a godly life resisting sin? The answer is because I'm a servant of God, not a slave to sin. Because God has operated on my heart so that I believe the good news about Jesus, because that changes my motives and then it changes my actions, my whole lifestyle, ultimately my eternity. I have a new master and a new power to say no to sin and to say yes to God. No longer slaves to sin, but servants of righteousness. Now, as we come to work out what this means for us, it's worth reminding ourselves that it's very hard that Christian faith is a love story, isn't it? in which we, the unlikely and the unlovely objects of his unwarranted affection and desire, to the point where he pursues us, leaving his heavenly home in the person of Jesus, treading upon the baked earth of our home, climbing onto a Roman executioner's cross, and then descending into death in his pursuit of us. It's the most remarkable love story. In its very essence, Christianity is a reconciled relationship with God, made possible by the person and work of Jesus. At its heart, it's a relationship. It is also a worldview, but that's not at its heart. It also involves a transaction or a trade, but even that is not at its very centre. 
It includes a sin management program in which our sins and shortcomings are forgiven and paid by Jesus, but that's not the essence of it all. Relationship with God is the very essence of the Christian faith. Nevertheless, the issue of what we do with the sin that remains in our lives is not an incidental question. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us powerful motivations for not carelessly indulging in sin. We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer, he says. We're alive to Christ, let us live a new life to God. We've been set free from sin and things that lead to death. We've become servants of God and his righteousness. Very powerful motivations. And yet there are also some powerful, passionate exhortations and instructions to us. Let's listen to some of them. I've got them up here. Verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Or verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. The other side of verse 13. Offer yourselves to God and every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Verse 19, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Now just to have a look at the verbs in those verses. Do not let sin reign. Offer yourselves, count yourselves. They're very decisive words, aren't they? They really sound like they mean business. That's okay because, um, well, they sound like they require discipline and effort. And that is okay because discipline is the sort of thing a disciple might do. <laughs> and, and grace isn't opposed to effort and action. It's opposed to earning and entitlement. But, you know, this is less about activating your own kind of personal store of willpower. And it's more about changing your understanding of who you are and who or what reigns in your life. Count yourself dead to sin. It no longer rules you, friend. Consider yourself alive to God. He's the new sheriff in your heart. And only then do not offer the parts of your body, your mind, your hands, your heart, your mouth, your sexuality, your imagination, your energy, whatever it is. Do not offer them to sin. Offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. I mean, you want to ask yourself the question, and maybe it's a question you ask yourself over lunch at home later on rather than over a cup of coffee, but who knows? Are there parts of my life that really belong to the old self that I need to count as dead, in the grave, in the tomb? Is there a habit? I've allowed it to creep in. <laughs> it's been there for the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, or is there a relationship? or even just a part of a relationship? Is there a bitter attitude of the heart um, or a negative and critical spirit? It's easy to become that as you get older, isn't it? Do I have a life that doesn't look obviously sinful, but it really it's selfishly absorbed with myself and my own little program of, I don't know, leisure or opportunities or achievements? Because this passage isn't saying Christians cannot commit individual sins. It's not even saying they, they won't struggle with habitual sins or addictions. 
But it is saying that we can't continue in it deliberately. We can't tolerate it without any sense of distaste. Offer yourselves to God and every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And friends, this passage is saying with great passion that it's now possible for us to say no to sin in our lives. Not that we always will, of course not. But in any situation, we don't have to sin. Right? We're not helpless victims. We're not senseless fools without any other option, even though that's often how we think of ourselves. We can choose to say no now that we have died to sin and are alive to Christ and as servants of God, and are filled with his spirit, and a new regime is in place in our lives, and a new sheriff rules over our hearts. The corrupt old regime of sin is no longer in charge, although it does love to lob hand grenades onto our path all the time. But I want to encourage you, without burdening you, that if you think you cannot resist sin in your life, you know that you can. The point of being freed from sin is not that we never feel its pull, but that we can actually resist its pull by offering ourselves to righteousness. Now that a new sheriff rules our hearts, we can now say no to lying or to greed or to bitterness or jealousy or revenge or slander or selfishness whenever those temptations come our way. Count yourselves, offer yourselves, says the Apostle, offer every part of yourself to God. And as we finish this passage, and uh, really we finish our series in Romans for now, although we will come back, there is no better place, I thought, to finish than verse 23. It's the final verse in our passage today, and it's a favourite memory verse, and it reads this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet in our group last Wednesday night, it occurred to me, I saw something that I hadn't seen after listening to uh, four sermons the week before, a verse from Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that says this, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we have talked a lot this term about sin, about its origin, about its attachment to us, about its effect on our lives and its result in death. But grace reigns. The overwhelming goodness of God to undeserving sinners like you and me through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus reigns. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more because grace reigns. Where sin leads to death, The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus because grace reigns. It doesn't just make up a useful contribution. It doesn't just square up the ledger or even things out. Grace reigns. It rules. It overcomes. Grace reigns. Thanks be to God for the reign of grace that brings life from death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together, friends. Heavenly Father, we wonder what to do with the the presence and, and the power of sin in our lives, though we've been forgiven eternally for its penalty. We are tempted to 
go on sinning so that grace might increase. But today we've realised, well, we can't do that. We're dead to sin and we're alive to you. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're servants of you. So help us to count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to you and servants of you and your great righteousness so that we can offer every part of our lives to you in obedience for we know that grace reigns.
Lord, expose our sin to our hearts so that we are able to change. Father, we pour out your kindness, Lord, on the people of Ukraine in their time of need. Comfort the families that have been torn apart, those who have lost people that they love. May your love and compassion flow abundantly through the chaos and fear of each new, that each new day brings. Father, we pray that in these situations the Christians might shine and that many may turn their hearts to you. Father, we pray also for the Afghan earthquake. We pray that aid might get through. We pray again that the Christians might be do good there and that people again might turn to you. And that you'll keep those people safe. Father, we pray for our mission partners, Michelle and Andrew Bloomer in Austria. We give you thanks that they found a new office for the English Language Centre and we pray for a smooth transition as they move. We pray also that they will be spiritually and physically refreshed over summer after two tiring years living through the pandemic. Pour your strength into them in readiness to start the new term in, in September. Thank you for their church community and we ask that you will bless them richly with love for one another. Father, we thank you for the faithful service of all our ministers today, but especially for Bruce Clark, our senior minister, and his wife, Kathy. We thank you that they're able to take some time out this week. We pray this will be a time of deep rest, of good relationships. They'll seek you and that they'll recharge. We pray for the conference that Bruce attends next week, that it will be uplifting, that he'll have many fruitful conversations and it might be a benefit to him in his walk with you. Father, we give you thanks for the Tough to Love seminar presented by Deborah Bernstead last week. We thank you for her wisdom and the things she had to say. We acknowledge that we can do nothing without you. Help us to first turn to you for guidance at times when relationships are not going smoothly. Give us humility to accept our own shortcomings and understand the part that we need to play in reconciliation. Within our own congregation at 8am, we pray for some individuals today. We pray for those who are regular members who are not able to come at the moment, those who are isolated at home and those who are in full-time nursing care. We pray for Theodora Smith, Maureen Goldston-Morris, Dennis De De Rosario, Ruth and Robert Ross, Liz Gillam, Norma Odlam, Jen and Russ Muttox, Basil and Edie South. We pray that they might remember you, that you might cause them to, to cling to you in these times when they are away from church fellowship. We pray especially for Pam Collis, who's not well at the moment. We pray that you will keep her free from pain. We pray that you will keep her loving you. Thank you that she has family around her who love her. And I pray that she might love you to the last of her days. We also pray for Pat Irving as she's undergoing further treatment for cancer. We pray for wisdom for the doctors 
for a deep trust in you. Thank you for the, the people that these people have around them, for their loving families, their loving friends. In their difficulty and isolation, would you be their ever-present comfort and strength? And may they hold on to the hope that they have. Just going to give us an opportunity to just pray for people that we know. Before that, I'm just going to pray for one more person. Father, we pray for Irene Huang, who's fractured her wrists and isn't able to come. I pray that uh, you too will be present with her. She'll keep, keep holding to you. And we pray for Isabel Dwyer's daughter, Sawena Dwyer, who has chronic fatigue at the moment. I pray that Isabel will know how to love her. I pray that you'll give her strength, keep her, keep her trusting, and that she, you might heal her body. So now I'm just going to give us that 30 seconds just to pray and to, for those people that we know and love who are in difficulty at the moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your immense love for us, that your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you that your, your grace reigns and that you give us the gift of eternal life. May we allow your grace to take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our words and actions each day so that we truly can be instruments of your righteousness. Amen. Uh, friends, as I said earlier, we're now going to share together in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you'll need a little communion pack. If you, ha if you don't have one, Chris has got a whole pack of them at the back. Would you raise your hand? We need a couple down the front and uh, one over here. And uh, whilst they're being delivered, the rest of us might like to just uh, take the top off uh, the little pack in readiness for sharing in the bread and the cup in a moment. So the Lord's Supper, amongst other things, is a, a simple ceremonial meal which uh, gives us the opportunity in a very concrete way to go back to that last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, uh, which is the source of our, our practice of sharing in the Lord's Supper today. Uh, let me just remind you of what the scriptures say about what took place that night. It says, on the, the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and then gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And then in the same way after the meal, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he was pointing forward to the significance of him going to the cross and rising again for establishing that relationship with him, which we now enjoy today. A relationship which is characterised by his forgiveness so that we can know that we've died with him and risen with him. It's entirely appropriate, therefore, as we remember the death of Jesus, that we remember our sins, which sent him to the cross. So the Apostle John says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not, not in us. So would you join me in this prayer of confession? Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love but we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We're sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, the Apostle John goes on to say in chapter 2 of 1 John, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we can be entirely confident of God's forgiveness of us in Christ. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then we'll share together in the bread and the cup. We thank you, our Father, that in your love and mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation. By this offering of himself once and for all time, Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and commanded us to continue a remembrance of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to our Saviour's command, in remembrance of his suffering and death, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. So will you now take the bread? And let's eat this together in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the cup. Let's drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and be thankful. And I invite you to pray this prayer of thanksgiving and dedication to the Lord. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise 
that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen. Well, friends, that all but closes the formal part of our gathering. Um, I invite you, especially if you're a guest and you've never joined us for morning tea, out through these doors across the courtyard and in the function room. We'd love to have you join us for that. But let's be standing now and uh, let's entrust one another to God's care using the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.